So when I found out I was going to be the one speaking today, I went to the readings and Genesis 3, 1 through 21, the fall. <laughs> um, this is a very well-known passage. There's been a lot of preaching on it, a lot of teaching on it. It's powerful. It's, it's one of those that if you just keep reading it over and over, it's bound to transform you. It's bound to convict you. You're bound to, to wander into confession, and you're going to want God to be more and more with you. Uh, so, um, and then I read Psalm 130. Actually, we don't do that in the 1030 service, which is really a shame because that's where most of my text is going to come from today is Psalm 130, but the psalm is David's psalm. And David is feeling pressed down and trapped by his sin. Uh, and he is crying out to God f for help, for God to take him, to, for God to come to, to bring him out of the depths into his presence. And then 1 Corinthians with Paul is no, again, very good reading and not hard to figure out at all. And then I got to the gospel. And I'm reading the gospel, and I go back and I read Genesis and Psalms and 2 Corinthians, and I read the gospel, and I go back. Well, I did this several times, uh, trying to figure out, Lord, I know that the gospel is supposed to give evidence to the other readings of the day, but I'm not seeing it. So I need your help. And so I just continued to read. Um, I got a little anxious at certain points, and then finally I just relaxed with it. I thought, <laughs> you know, this is your word, Lord. You will speak. And so I'll just relax here. And I think he gave me a word for all of us today, and I hope it hangs together pretty well. Um, but you can be the judge of that. Okay? So the fall. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and their minds and their hearts are forever changed, forever changed. They hide out of fear. The Lord God asks Adam, where are you? And then the Lord God asks Eve, what is this you have done? Their rebellion, their desire, their envy to be all-knowing wise like the Lord God does not result in bringing them what the, what the lie of the serpent promised. Doesn't do it. Sin enters. Sin born full-grown and destructive. The serpent deceives them, and they in turn attempt to deceive God and one another. Instead of walking in the cool of the evening in paradise, with the Lord God, which I truly believe is a solemn act of daily worship for them. Instead of doing that, the intimacy of that relationship is destroyed. They hide in fear and shame. Instead of eagerly being in the perfect presence of the love they have known, they betray that love with unbelief and deceit. They betray God, and then they betray one another. Adam and Eve traded the freedom of perfect love and the very real, everyday experience of glory for the lie. This is a story of transgression, degradation, and ruin.
humankind is in a fallen state. This is their story. This is our story. Broken covenant. Broken relationship. Now, lest we think we would have been and are so different from Adam and Eve, let me ask you a couple of questions. How many, and I know there are many, and I said many times, you have pursued the promise of Satan's lie, going your own way, pursuing your own desires, hiding from God, thinking that somehow the ends would justify the means, or hiding because you think God can't see you, God can't know, know you, he's over here somewhere. You'll just do this, and then you'll let God in. How many times have we done that? How many times have we shifted the blame to something else or someone else? trying to evade the responsibility of our own sin, thereby evading or escaping the consequences and, yes, the punishment of what we have knowingly and freely done. How many times have we looked at our own wrongdoing and not seen it is a wrongdoing? because the eyes of our understanding are blinded. We are masters at justifying, rationalizing, and placing blame, and not accepting the responsibility of our own doing. How many times have we not entered into a solemn worship, walked with our God, because of fear, because of shame, because of the feeling of unworthiness, or because we are pursuing our desires and not his. How many times? Adam and Eve were surely guilty. We get that. But will we see and will we admit that we are surely guilty also? When we, like the psalmist, hit the end of ourselves, when the sorrow of our hearts opens the eyes of our understanding and we know that we are guilty, when we feel the death pangs of our spirit, when we know we can't fix anything, we are utterly alone. We, too, must cry out to God, for there is no other who can deliver, who can make it better, who can heal or satisfy, who can redeem that emptiness, that loneliness, that longing. We cry out from the depths of disappointment and defeat from the depths of fear and confusion, from the depths of guilt and shame, from the depths of emptiness and loneliness. Our need 
goes so, so deep and is so, so desperate. The reality of our state can no longer be hidden or ignored. Sin, our sin, causes us to know our relationship with him who created us, with him who gave us life, with him who loves us, is broken. We will know, like David knew, that sin drags us to the depths while God has made us for the heights. Sin has taken us farther than we want to go. Sin keeps us longer than we are willing to stay. And sin costs us more than we are willing to pay. Like David, we realize the burden and weight of unconfessed sin presses us down, entraps us. We sought our passions apart from God, and now we are in need of deliverance. Out of the depths, we cry for forgiveness and redemption. David says in the psalm, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. I thought about this and I discovered waiting is not a strong suit of any human being. We have pursued our desires, our passions, and when it wasn't fast enough, quick enough, we maneuvered, we manipulated, we sidestepped in an effort to make things happen. We live in an instant society of instant everything. We are impatient and demanding creatures. We want now not two minutes from now. But here's what I have to say to you. Our solemn act of worship is not an act that happens with our quick demand. Just doesn't. Intimate relationship is not a bundable commodity arrived at with a click of a mouse, or a microwavable 60 seconds, or a purchasable, or purchasable in a drive-thru. Waiting upon the Lord, I've discovered, and I hope you will too, is a grace. It's a grace from the Lord, and it is a discipline. He requires us to wait. Why? Waiting causes us to practice the patience of faith. Waiting gives us time to prepare for his blessing. Waiting gives evidence to the truth of the sovereignty of God in that he acts 
at the perfect moment, at the perfect time. And waiting brings the utmost joy and celebration when the blessing is given and received. The truth we discover when we wait upon the Lord is that our impatience, our desire for instant satisfaction, for reward, for gain, like Adam and Eve, is the root cause of our sin. David says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. We discover a most profound and sweet truth when we wait upon the Lord. Our waiting is not so much about the thing that we are waiting for. It is waiting for the Lord who is the giver of the thing that we are waiting for. We wait for him. We wait for him. In the quiet stillness of waiting, trust and dependence is learned and formed. In the patient discipline of waiting, the promises God has made becomes our hope of redemption, a living hope. Our scriptures tell us he is ready to forgive, and faith in the Savior brings forgiveness to the soul. Forgiveness is the cool, pure, flowing water that quenches the thirsty soul. Forgiveness is the radical treatment bringing healing of our sin-sick mind and body. Forgiveness is waking to hope within and brings the promise and blessing of God's abundant redemption. That's what Paul calls it today, abundant redemption. God's abundant redemption brings freedom from guilt, from shame, from emptiness, from loneliness. It brings victory in the trials and storms of life. It brings the utmost joy and celebration in the victories of life. It moves us out of the depths into abundant life. That's his promise. The eyes of our understanding are opened, and we know, as Paul says, whatever begins with grace leads to exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Not a pressed down, oppressed, entrapped state, but an exceeding, eternal weight of glory. Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. This is true in the waiting of the storms of illness, of death. When we wait in the patience of faith, we will be like Job and utter to the Lord, even though you slay me, yet I will praise you. When we wait in the patience of faith, we are following in the footsteps of the prophets and the apostles who in the reality of their lives in the moment suffered, suffered greatly at the hands of men. We can't call their lives easy by any stretch. But as they suffered at the hands of men, they looked up to the things unseen and knew that victory was theirs because victory was the Lord's. Hope unseen was and is the Redeemer restoring relationship of the redeemed with the God who created us for relationship with himself and with one another. And then we get to our gospel. And as I said, I just kept reading and reading and reading and praying and trying to figure out how does this passage give weight and evidence to the lessons taught in Genesis, in Psalm 103, and in 2 Corinthians? How? How does this story point us to redemption restores relationship? First, Mark gives us three perspectives of Jesus in today's lesson. The disciples and the multitudes, the Pharisees and the scribes, and then Jesus' family and friends, brothers and sisters. What I believe is that each of these represents and gives evidence to the fall of Adam and Eve. Because I believe when we put these in context, we can see in the disciples and the multitudes, the Pharisees and the scribes, the friends and the family, sin and its effect on our human history. Number one, unbelief happened in the garden. Unbelief. Giving into the promises of the lies of the tempter and living on our own terms so that we are made vulnerable and afraid happened to Adam and Eve. I believe it happens to all three sets of people in the gospel. Number two, rebellion and its consequences. Disobedience, fear, guilt, shame, emptiness, blame, which in turn puts us in need of truth, in need of healing, in need of a redeemer kinsman. Third, pride. Fatally overwhelmed to be all-knowing and wise, not just for ourselves, but for everyone everywhere. Doesn't this describe the Pharisees and the scribes? 
They wanted to be all-knowing, all-wise. Lack of fear. A darkened understanding of who God really is. That we can believe that we can be like him and even save and protect him. The very puzzling thing in our gospel was when it says that his friends and family came to seize him. Let me set the gospel in context. I read from the full chapter of, uh, the full book of Mark, from chapter one. And actually beginning at chapter three, <coughs> which is where our lesson is today, we read that Jesus is angry with the Pharisees. He's angry with them because there is a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath with a withered hand who needs healing. And the Pharisees are looking at him and waiting and maliciously wanting him to do something that's illegal so that they can accuse him. And it says that Jesus is angry. He is grieved by the callous and hardened hearts of the Pharisees on that day. And so he heals the man with a withered hand on a Sabbath. And there it is. They have what they need. Now they can plot to destroy him. And they set out to do so. The multitudes follow him away, many of which he heals. Jesus then withdraws to a mountain, and there we read that he calls unto himself the twelve apostles so that he can teach them to do what he does, to preach, to heal, to do the work of the Father. Then Jesus comes back from the mountain, enters a house, and here is where we are today. The multitudes surround the house. The scribes attribute his miracles to Beelzebub. Jesus vindicates himself with the parable of a house divided against itself and warns all of them of the consequence of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. While he is speaking inside, his mother and brethren outside send for him to save him from himself. They've listened to the rumors. They've heard that he is beside himself. They have heard that the Pharisees and scribes are saying he is doing this out of Beelzebub. So they come to, to take him away, to protect him, to save him. It's this time that Jesus takes the occasion to show them that those who do the will of God, not the will of men, but who do the will of God are to him, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. Because you see, it's only by true kinship that redemption restores relationship. He said this to those inside, not to those outside who were his blood relatives. Now, we can be like those in the multitude. We can follow 
not seeking him necessarily, but only looking for the blessing, for the healing, for the reward, for the gain that we think we can get. We can be that part of the multitude. We can fall prey to the tempter's lies, trying to make ourselves equal with God, thus making Jesus an enemy that must be destroyed. Do you think the Pharisees and the scribes set out to put themselves against God? No. But they fell prey to what the tempter's lies gave them they began to think of themselves as holy, as religious, as all-knowing, as all-wise. And they left behind the one, God, who was creator. And the one who came to save, they deem an enemy. They deem that he is dangerous. We can fall prey. They did. We can get caught up in our intellect and pride, setting God aside for our own rules so that the truth becomes dangerous. Have you ever met someone who is extremely intelligent? And as you're having conversation with them, you feel like maybe you're a six-month-old child? Don't forget, our intellect and our pride in our intellect may very well make us pray to falling into the lie that we can make ourselves equal with God, thus making Jesus an enemy to destroy. We can be so intellectually knowledgeable that truth becomes extremely dangerous to us. Jesus is warning all of them. Jesus is warning us. If we fall victim to any of these, we are in real and imminent, I know I wouldn't be able to say that, imminent danger of committing one unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For if we live unto ourselves, if we live unto the evil one, we will be eternally condemned. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes Jesus known. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. He's the redemption that restores relationship. If we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he can't indwell us. He can't lead and guide us. We will be eternally condemned to live apart from God because we've become our own God. True kinmanship with Jesus requires and costs our surrender, our humility, our obedience, 
our full dependence and believing upon him who is well able to redeem us from ourselves and from the evil one. Only Jesus can pull us out of the depths, out of the hurt and devastation and degradation of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction, the kind of conviction that David was feeling and knowing. The confession and lead us into that confession of our desperate need for the God who created us. Our attitude of faith transforms us from a sinner alone in the depths to the redeemed of the Lord in the heights. True kinship makes it possible to walk with him, to love him and seek him, to do the will of him living for what matters and what lasts through eternity, not living for those fleeting things of, uh, in moments, the joys of the moments that pass away and are never known, that wither and dry up. We will live for what matters and what has eternal, eternal cost. Some will ignore this truth. Some will mock this truth. But the truth is unchanging and eternal. God's abundant redemption restores relationship. Restored relationship with our Redeemer, kinsman, Jesus Christ, takes us from death to life, from guilt to forgiveness, from darkness to light, from lost to hope from bondage to freedom. I don't know how many of you got Esther's email this week, but I thought it was a perfect ending because what it says is, oh, perfect redemption. And in the words that Fanny Crosby wrote many, many years ago, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave his son. Who yielded, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Redemption restores relationship. Amen? Amen. Amen.